0: Welcome to Self-A-Security Chat Chat for March 15th, 2011. This is episode number 52. Finally, the 52nd one-year anniversary episode of the Chat Chat. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I've got Michael Argas joining me remotely again to, uh, this week. Welcome, Michael.
1: Hello, Chet. I, I think you've uh, avoided the fact that you actually missed one or two episodes in there. So I think we're actually a little bit past a year.
0: But- yeah, it is a year and a week. I missed one episode, I believe, last June. Or it might have been uh, in, a, in a hazy moment during Black Hat when I can't quite remember all the things that happened that week. But um, yeah, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're, we 52 is the one year worth of them, one year and one week uh, into the podcast so that's a good point last week was one year I, I didn't want to admit that i missed one but i guess the cat's out of the bag um anyhow we've got a really busy agenda this week uh, there's a lot of things going on and, and starting off with one that that occurred today that i think uh, I, I was quite happy good news for once uh, twitter has enabled an option to choose full-time https and yes yeah. un- unlike facebook um it doesn't break stuff
1: yeah, well, and I guess uh, I don't know if it's fire sheep that's caused everybody to suddenly become a little bit more concerned about having same defaults on this kind of stuff or what. But uh, it's good to see this trend uh, spreading. And uh, it's interesting. I wonder how it affects things like, you know, third party clients and other stuff as it relates to this. Or it may, I mean, Twitter's already kind of come out and said they want to kill off third party clients. So.
0: Well, it shouldn't affect them because uh, third-party clients um, are required to use the uh, APIs, the OAuth APIs. And as a result, they don't actually transmit your passcode anyhow. You have to grant them authorization and they work differently. So it shouldn't, I mean, the the real key to security with the HTTPS stuff is, is managing your session IDs and, and things like that so that you can't be hijacked. So I, I don't think it should have much impact. And the, the complexity, the real complexity in this stuff that I've had conversations with our own engineers in the labs about a few times and in development um, is that, you know, we'd love a full HTTPS world and we really have the power that we can do that now. The problem really is, is that you can't mix content, right? So if you start, if you have ad networks on your web page, and you run HTTPS and the ads are either a different HTTPS or HTTP, you then get that browser warning saying, Oh, you've got mixed third-party content, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of sites are hesitant. Um,
1: Yeah. I've been seeing a lot of that these days on my Google reader um, because, you know, it, serves up content that's not the HTTPS. A lot, of, a lot of warnings when I'm using various browsers
0: so yeah I'm wondering if it's time that we rethink how those warnings work and things I mean they, they totally made sense for kind of tipping you off that something was fishy in the old days with the way things used to work but if we want to move to a full HTTPS society on the interwebs uh, you know we might want to review and rethink, uh, you know how those warnings are displayed, or you know how we decide to display them, because I think that's the biggest thing holding a lot of sites back from deciding to move forward with this. And that's the problem with Facebook, right? If you enable HTTPS on Facebook, and then you know most games or apps on Facebook are actually just web pages embedded in the Facebook Chrome, and so you know you have to disable HTTPS to access those, so that you don't get those warnings. Yeah. Um, so that's good news. If you're a Twitter user, if you're if you're not a Twitter user, you don't give a flying flip. Just forward thirty seconds through the podcast. If you are, turn this on. It's really good. Make sure it's enabled. Uh, we have uh, Paul Ducklin wrote a great article on Naked Security where you can read about how you do it and what the advantages are of doing it. Uh, Congress stepped in and decided that apparently the they, they neutered the FCC. They killed net neutrality. Um, I'm not sure will, quite what I think of this because I don't think what the FCC did was what my vision of net neutrality would be anyhow. But, you know, what's your take on this? I mean, if the FCC can't regulate, what the hell are they? What what are they there for?
1: Yeah, I, if I was working for the FCC today, I'd be very nervous about, you know, next step. Congress goes after their job as a way of cutting money and. You know, it's certainly a kind of a strong tendency towards uh, lowering regulation on the Congress side, but I, I yeah, I mean, the FCC net neutrality thing wasn't perfect. Um, it's certainly a lot better than what a lot of the carriers are asking for. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't. I think this is a step backwards rather than a step forwards. But
0: um, you know. Well, I mean, it's great for the FCC to be able to regulate, you know, ham radio and over-the-air television, but they're becoming less and less relevant. It, it, the Internet's kind of a natural fit into their mandate. And in, I guess, you know, it's being dismantled just like the EPA in the United States and several other things that um, those of Don't us... Don't
1: pick on the ham radio operators. They're going after the spectrum next is what I've been hearing. So, you know.
0: Well, I'm not picking on the ham guys. I, I just think the ham guys are reasonably self-regulating uh, compared to, say, Comcast and Verizon. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have... Word about, you know, the corporatization of our uh, internet freedoms as opposed to, um, I'm not really worried about the ham guys. I think I know quite a lot of them and they're quite well behaved. Um, yeah kind of interesting hacks in the news, although quite difficult, apparently University of California at San Diego researchers, along with researchers from the University of Washington, or as we call them here in the Northwest, the UW, um, were able to hack cars uh, last year and had been in the news about being able to like remotely lock and forge odometers and, and turn off cars that were running and this kind of stuff. But it required them to like have a laptop wired into the you know, a jack in the car, Uh, apparently they've expanded their research now to show that there is no separation between the car control systems and a lot of these entertainment slash, I I don't want to name any brands, although um, I think most of you are familiar with uh, one particular company who does a lot of podcast support with commercial podcasts, but they, you know, through Bluetooth and cellular interfaces and things like this, are able to actually get into the entire car's systems and hack them now. And I was just, you know, to me it just ran, it rung bells in my head of things like the the smart power meters, and it, it's like we need to make the exact same security mistakes.
1: Again and again and again.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite disappointing. I mean, we, we certainly screwed up with our computers in the early Internet uh, being a little too trustworthy and wanting to love one another and hope that we were all going to be cool with, with things. and we
1: Yeah, but my computer usually isn't a 5,000 5, pounds of steel hurtling down the highway at 90 miles an hour, right? So yeah, it's, a, it's a whole other category of risk. Um, in this scenario, it's—I uh, mean, it's still a bit Hollywood movie at this stage, but um, hopefully, it doesn't get much beyond that as well.
0: Well, the researchers say the attacks are quite difficult, although you know, the, I mean, Bluetooth has a decent range, and I mean, well, granted, I have a hard time getting it to work at five meters occasionally, but um, even more concerning is the cellular side, right? I mean, if you can start coming in through the cellular network, that means that you know, half a world away, you could compromise someone. It's a little scary. Very scary. Um bad news that uh, there's a website for those of you who aren't um, uh, into tracking botnets as much as some of us are called abuse.ch ch Uh, CH is the country code for switzerland and abuse.ch has kind of made themselves uh, a pretty big name in the research community in the malware side of looking at things like the zeus botnet and tracking down the command and control servers and where they're located and sharing a lot of excellent blacklist information with the community and uh, trying to really track some of these banking trojan guys down and, of course, Zeus stopped being developed, and it's kind of merged with this other guy that writes something called SpyEye. Uh, unfortunately, Abuse.ch was taken down for quite a bit of time this week, from what I understand, due to a DDoS attack. Apparently, the newest version of this Trojan now specifically targets their website and allows a distributed denial of service using the malware itself. Uh, right. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that. I mean, certainly a lot of pieces of malware are capable of DDoS, but... It's almost like a new tactic.
1: Yeah, target the guys who are targeting them. It's uh, we've seen the malware guys go after the the the, cap, the defense guys quite a number of times, but uh, actually coding it right into the malware directly is is a bit of a new step for them. So,
0: yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that. Um maybe the, the the efforts of the abuse.ch guys can uncover not just the people operating these botnets, but maybe the guy behind this stuff. But it, it's so difficult to track some of this stuff and, and they do an excellent job. And a, anyone that wants to support them, I encourage you to go to their website. Don't, don't DOS them, but uh, go to www.abuse.ch excellent information there and resources. And, and if you have uh, the ability to support them in any way, I encourage you to do it because they're providing an excellent community service.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they're able to, take care of themselves to a certain extent. I mean, they are, they are security experts, and there are ways of defending these sorts of attacks. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, it's, it's not a, f- a free thing to do, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that they should be capable of helping to defend themselves. So.
0: Well, that's the issue. I mean, you, you pretty much need to invest in some resources uh, in order to defend against DDoS-style attacks, and yep. hopefully they have the resources. And if they don't, maybe uh, lots of small donations from those of us who care can help them along. And uh, Safari, big, a monster Safari patch. Um, I'm not, I'm not familiar with very many people using Safari on Windows, but I, I do notice that a lot of OS X or OS X fans that I'm uh, friends with seem to just kind of default to using it on their Mac machines. Uh, 62 vulnerabilities fixed. Yeah, the,
1: the, like 15 minutes before Pondo, and it still didn't work. But you know, um, I guess they, uh, they made an attempt at least.
0: No, I think the pa- I think the fix for the Pwn2Own vulnerability was in that uh, update. It was just not; it, it wasn't in time to qualify to be on the machines to protect against it. Uh, so that kind of ties two of these things together. I mean, we can kind of tie Pwn2Own into this. Of course, Apple was owned as usual um, in Pwn2Own, and there, there was a bit of controversy with Pwn2Own as well around um, Charlie Miller, who's been quite vocal the last few years, uh, known as uh, Ox Charlie. Uh, who's won three years in a row, and I think he won again this year, four years in a row now. Uh, he's breaking all kinds of records on the Pondo and stuff. But beforehand, he did an interview with Greg Kaiser at Computer World and was talking about how he thought it was dangerous what Tipping Point was doing with this type of contest, basically encouraging researchers to weaponize vulnerabilities when they might normally just simply report them. And he was saying how if if he didn't win, he wasn't just going to give them his vol and he was going to keep it and do something else with it. And that created a controversy.
1: Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting. I mean, on one side, he's critiquing the other side he's saying that he would in fact take those actions, which is kind of a, a
0: bit two-sided, but... Um. Oh, yeah, He's been doing this for a while. Like, last year, his big thing was, you know, why should I report to Adobe the 75 vulnerabilities in Adobe Reader I found when it only took me a weekend to do it? You know, if they were doing their job, they would know, so I'm sick of feeding them stuff. Screw it. Yeah. I'm just going to keep the vulns, and if they want to bother to find them, it won't take them that long, because one man did it in the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I kind of I see his point, although, uh, you know, for the for the safety of us all, I'm not sure that that's um, necessarily a good thing. But it does take strong individuals sometimes to stand up and make a really important political point for the industry to wake up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, uh, Charlie's not a black hat. So, you know, hopefully he wouldn't be weaponizing him himself. But.
0: No, and then the second part of the uh, the Safari thing was that apparently Apple's decided that they're no longer going to be updating Apple iPhone 3GS users and earlier or those generations of iPod Touches and earlier. And I was quite sh- shocked.
1: That's a really short time frame for security obsolescence. I mean, I'm, I'm as we all have discussed in the past, I'm a bit of an Apple fanboy, but like the 3GS is just a couple of years old. Uh, I think in
0: uh, 18 months, it uh, was about when the f- iPhone 4 came out. I think it was last June. Um, or maybe it was last June, not even 18 months, right? I mean, we're talking nine months.
1: Yeah. I mean, on the on the flip side, I'm, I'm not sure how many of these things have actually been weaponized in a way that they can actually compromise devices, and we're seeing stuff in the wild. But to say that altogether the, they've dropped protection for those platforms and don't intend to protect them going forward is... It's a pretty significant thing. and
0: um, Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of devices and, yeah. and and something that wasn't cheap. It's not like I got it for free for signing up for a pay-as-you-go plan. This is a $600 phone.
1: Yeah, and there's, I almost feel like there needs to be some sort of kind of minimum time of maintain, maintaining patches and security protection for, for this sort of thing, for operating systems for devices, what have you. I don't know what that minimum minimum should be, maybe for something like a mobile phone, which only lasts four or five years, that would be long enough, but you no, know, it, it, it's gotta be more than 18 months.
0: Well, I would, I would like it if the green people and the hippies spoke up, like what the heck, right? We're, we're basically telling you th- after you have a phone for a year, throw it away. It's, a, it's very anti-eco. Um, yep. If I'm not able to be safe, then I don't feel comfortable banking and doing all the things I do on my, my smartphone. So that's kind of scary.
1: Well, the other thing is that it does present a rather interesting opportunity for the jailbreaking community because, you know, the argument could be made that, you know, Apple's no longer securing those devices, but the jailbreaking community could be. And, uh, you know, it's, at what point do you end up being uh, in a scenario where you're actually more secure at a jailbreaker device than less secure?
0: Well, I think the point would be about right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, not to encourage people to get outside the walled garden but clearly the walled garden is no longer being maintained and the weeds are growing in so you got to do what you got to do
1: yeah uh, there's a big chance of the broken window window syndrome of happening here so uh hopefully uh hopefully they they kind of realize this and uh you know, they either change their stance or if they actually start seeing act actual malware in the wild that they, they kind of backtrack and, and provide the protection against those things
0: and, and these updates. Yeah, I mean as a vendor, I understand the hesitance to have to continually backport and patch old stuff, but you know, I can download a Linux distro and run it for, you know, long term support versions for three, four, five years and know that I'm okay to do that. And I, I don't I don't see why I shouldn't expect that for the other devices that I own. Um, tsunami scams. Unfortunately, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on these, but uh, the tragedy in Japan, which has just been absolutely awful, um, already the bad guys picking up on this stuff. Uh, fortunately. It's actually been less than we've seen with some previous uh, tragedies, but it's it's being hit. We're seeing a lot of stuff on Facebook in particular, and uh, we did see a, a, a fake uh, British Red Cross attack earlier today. I, I did some research earlier as well, looking um, through our spam traps and discovered... lot of financial scams where they're doing pump and dump based on the idea that, oh, Japanese stocks are going to tank or gold's going to do this or oil's going to do that as a result of this tragedy, you know, cash in kind of thing. Um, So keep an eye out for that stuff. If if you want to support uh, the folks over there and, if you know, go to your local charities, local charities and communities all around the world are collecting money. Um, to help out with the rescue efforts and food and water and all the different things that the, the folks over there need. And if you're not comfortable or don't know where to go online, I mean, you can always go to redcross.org. And in addition to going to redcross.org, you can go to your local charities and they're they're collecting cash and, and other resources they need and sending it along. So uh, avoid anything that comes to you. Make sure you go to the source if you want to help. Good advice. And lastly, uh, you brought up, Michael, I totally forgot about it, I felt bad, uh, the Adobe Zero Day. So there's a new Zero Day in Flash. And, um, unpatched. Unpatched. And it's being exploited in the wild. It's a, it's a bit of a goofy thing in that it seems to be uh, coming in through Excel spreadsheets that then launch Adobe Reader, which happens to contain Flash and exploiting it that way. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the limit of how it can be exploited, but it does raise a couple interesting points. I mean, one Adobe Reader X with its sandbox technology, which is currently still only available for Windows. Uh, Adobe Reader X is on other platforms, but it doesn't have sandboxing outside of Windows. But the sandboxing does stop this attack, which is good news. So if you're a Windows user, you really. Make up- sure you're
1: running Reader X.
0: Yeah, update the Reader X. Uh, Get.adobe.com/slash reader is where you get that. And if uh you're a Mac or a Linux or a Android or a Solaris user while well, you're just screwed until there's a patch <laughs> um, and of course, you probably won't have excel, and currently that's the only way we've seen it being exploited, so that might be some mitigation, although Mac users might be a little vulnerable there uh the The thing I wanted to point out though is when on you know I understand that p d f is a container format, but does it really need to support flash
1: i uh... You know, it's kind of, you know, back in the day, it was Word and Excel and all these macro things, and everybody was going, do I really need my spreadsheet to be able to run all this executable code? And today it's Adobe and PDF, which seems to be a container for pretty much everything. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably one of the reasons people love it so much, but it's become, like so ubiquitous and so dangerous at the same time.
0: Um, I'd like to put a call out to the listeners of the chat chat. And if you've ever come across a legitimate PDF that contains an embedded flash file, please email me at studio at sophist.com because I've yet to see one. And I just want to know what one might look like. Hopefully it won't be malicious. I I, I hope that the only person who responds isn't Brad Arkin from Adobe when he listens to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a wrap. That is a wrap. Thank you, Michael. Um, On that note, this concludes Sophos Security Chat Chat 52. As always, you can get all of our podcasts at podcasts.sophos.com via RSS or on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.